0: Hello and welcome to the Convex Conversation with me, broadcaster Helen Fospero. The Queen's Gambit was the most watched series in the world last year, breaking all kinds of records on Netflix. More than 62 million households, mine included, tuned in to the seven-part drama. But the backstory of how its executive producer and co-creator finally got it to our screens is, well, pretty much as fascinating as the drama itself. Renowned and revered screen and scriptwriter Alan Scott, best known for iconic films like Nick Rogue's Don't Look Now, Shallow Grave, Regeneration, and the musical version of Priscilla, Queen of the Desert, has revealed it took him 30 years and nine rewrites to get studios on board. The epic drama is based on a 1983 novel by Walter Tevis. It tells the story of a young orphan chess prodigy, Beth Harmon, who makes a name for herself in Cold War-era America as she struggles with addiction in a quest to become the greatest player in the world, challenging the grandmasters of the sixties. Tell the readers of life how it feels
1: to be a girl among all those men. I don't mind it. Chess isn't always competitive can
0: also be beautiful. So, I'm in Alan's offices in London's Leicester Square to hear the story from the man himself. Alan, it's a pleasure to be here.
1: Well, thank you for that, yes. It didn't take me... I mean, I wasn't working every day on it for 30 years. I had to make that clear. It's good to
0: make that clear. I have actually brought you a little present. Oh, what's that? So, I've brought you a paperback of the Walter Tevis book with <laughs> Anya Taylor-Joy on the, on the cover, cover, I haven't seen cover and that. the Netflix logo. Oh, that's marvelous.
1: Go. Oh, good for her.
0: Tell us, what was it, Alan, that captivated you by the story, which I believe you read in, in about 1985,
1: didn't exactly. you? Exactly. So I read it fairly soon after publication. My, I worked a lot with Nick Grog, the director, and we'd made five films together. And one day Nick just said to me, here, read this. It's rather good. So I read it. And I immediately knew that I could make it. It was a, I kind of, it was like the same thing with Don't Look Now. The ending was so powerful that I knew I had to make the rest to make the ending work. And I felt the same about The Queen's Gambit as I did about, about Don't Look Now. The ending was what I was really working towards. Anyway, with these two great endings, I said to Nick, I love The Queen's Gambit, shall we do it? And he said, well, not so quick on the we." I said, well, what does that mean? He said, well, I don't think it's my kind of movie. I don't think I can do that. Come up with something else. So I came up with four something else's to work with Nick and just wrote the screenplay. I mean, I acquired the rights and wrote the screenplay. And the first director I went to was Bernardo Bertolucci. And Bernardo was a wonderful human being. We used to lunch once a month. We'd sit out at the River Cafe eat good Italian food, and I'd say to him, right, now what should we do? How, what do you want to change in the script? How do you want to approach it? Oh, let's shoot the movie. I said, well, no, but directors usually have opinions and they usually <laughs> want to do this or that. No, it's good, it's good. We make it a movie. And, sorry, I don't mean to do him in a comedy Italian
0: accent. Oh, well, I've interviewed him actually for Stealing Beauty. That is kind of how he speaks, isn't it? No, no, he, it? Speak,
1: he speaks very well. He speaks, and he understands. He's a wonderful character, isn't great, he? Great, great character. So for, for months. Bernardo said, let's just go shoot the movie. Anyway, so I didn't do much work with him on it. Why did you not end up shooting it with, with Bernardo? Uh, do you know, I, I lost in the mists of time. He, eventually, he found another project called Sheltering Sky, and he went off and made that. And, by then, and then I, so then I was on to Michael Apted. I'm not going to list all the directors.
0: Well, there have been quite a few, with. and they might be a bit embarrassed they now, might they?
1: I'm <laughs> no, not really. One was very surprising. I had a lovely couple of meetings with a fellow called Frank Oz who wanted to do it. Frank was the guy who gave you Kermit and amongst other Yeah, I remember that. Amazing The Muppets, wasn't it? Yeah, the Muppets. I worked with Jim Hansen later in my life Did doing you? The Witches. I made a movie called of The Course. Witches. Yeah, yeah. Which for some reason they decided to remake, reset it in America, and I haven't been to see it, but I hope it's horrible. <laughs> <laughs> I loved I loved the Witches and persuaded Nick to direct it.
0: Gosh. Oh, we're diversing now. We'll go back to The Queen's Gambit, but how did you meet Nick in the first place? Because I'm looking at a poster behind you, Don't Look Now, with Julie Christie and Donald Sutherland, and that is one of my all-time top three movies, I think. Yes, I
1: love that movie too. That was a project that some hard-working American director said to me and my then partner, we were writing together, would we like to do it? He'd seen something. The first screenplay I ever wrote was on spec, and we sold it to an American producer living in London for two thousand pounds. And that was enough to live on for a year in those days. It's a handsome
0: sum in those days,
1: wasn't it? Sum. Yes. And then we watched as he sold it on to somebody else for twelve thousand pounds. And then that person sold it on to some third party for fifty thousand pounds. And finally, it was sold to a lot. The last person who bought it paid £90,000 for a screenplay. And we thought, well, we sold too early, didn't we? <laughs> <laughs> so that's how, how you become a professional writer. Wow.
0: And what was it like working with Donald Sutherland and, and Julie Christie, who you still know, I gather?
1: Oh, I know, well, I know them both for life. I think you do. Um, Donald was, they were lovely. They were great to work with. Nick tells the story. I wasn't witness to it, but he tells the story that calling Donald after Donald had read the script and after Nick had offered the role to him. And Donald started saying, you know, but what about this? And do you think that? And could we do And Nick just said, do you want to make the effing movie or do you want to t- give me your notes? <laughs> and Donald said, do you want me to shut up? And Nick said, that would be the best way to get this movie made. You <laughs> I, mean, I think it's rather a sensible cont morale. Exactly. For almost any actor that you have a conversation with. I think so. So let's go back to the Queen's Gambit. Yes.
0: Before we name all the different directors. Bernardo didn't make the film in the end. No. But you did have you had discussions with oh my goodness, one of my favourite actors, Heath Ledger, didn't you? Yeah.
1: Well it was Heath was the last director before we got it made at Netflix. I spotted Heath's talent in a conversation with somebody who'd worked with him who said, you know, did you know he was a junior champion at chess? And so we had a couple of conversations about the script, but I realized that he not only understood the script, he was really a good director. And I knew this because he showed me in his house in Brooklyn all the commercials that he'd made, all the little you know, one-man movies that he'd made, and just spoof ads. And you could look at these things, and you knew right away this guy can do it. You know, it's, it's, he's got that gift. So we worked on the script for quite a long time, huge discussions about how many times we could change the actress because the story requires that you see her aged about six or seven, but you really need to see her again about 12, 14, and then as an adult. And it was really quite difficult because Heath wanted to have at least one love scene when she was a teenager. And I said, well, if you do that, you can't use the girl that you have playing her at 14 because the s- specter of paedophilia hangs over the next part of the movie. So we should have four girls playing her, which just seems... And I, then we went to see, or I went to see a, a, a Martin Scorsese movie about Tibet And they changed, um, what's the leader of the Tibetans called, the the spiritual, the Dalai Dalai Lama. Lama. The Dalai Lama is played, first of all, by a four-year-old, then by an eight-year-old, then by a 15-year-old, then by a 19-year-old, and then by a 30-year-old. And my wife, at one point during the movie, turns to me and said, I I like this one better than the other one. (laughs) And I "I think she's stepping out of the drama to be able to say that. (laughs) So I've got to limit the number of times we can see Beth, the girl in... Queen's Gambit
0: And did Heath agree with you in the end on that? that I, I a think we were in agreed.
1: Uh, yeah, we were agreed on the end because we, we'd agreed the screenplay by then, and then we so we'd agreed on the number of girls playing it. He was lovely to work with. We he was just finishing up Batman. He, you know, he was one of those few actors who really, really avoided the spotlight when he could because that kind of f- fan interaction with a star kind of ruined, he felt ruined him as a human being. And he wanted to remain a human being as much as possible because that's where he got his acting inspiration from. And you kind of admire that, which meant that when you went to a restaurant, he sat with his back to the door or the passage, passageway. And so he, he was a very modest guy. Anyway, he was a lovely person to work with. And he was off in New York for, for a week and I, and I spoke to him one night about music because he didn't know any of the music from the 60s and I had a couple of crucial songs that I wanted to get into the thing and we had a little chat about it and he said well I'll listen to the tape again and we'll talk about so and so and the following morning he was dead and I was so saddened by it and by the suddenness of it I suppose all death is sudden even when people are dying I didn't really feel I wanted to go on with the project very much his father Contacted me a few times saying we should make this together in memory of Heath. No, no, no. Films have their own lives. They don't need to borrow other people's. So I never really engaged with Mr. Ledger. And I let him go for a few years. And then by a wonderful coincidence, an American producer called Bill Horberg, whom I'd worked with, called me up one day and said, do you still have that wonderful screenplay of The Queen's Gambit? And I said, yeah. And so I met with Scott Frank and we, we became buddies over lunch in Greenwich Village. And it just kind of easily worked from then. And Netflix were a huge addition to the show. I, of course, having only worked on the story in 90-minute terms or 100-minute terms, wasn't sure at first about doing six episodes. But actually... I realized that one of the things that I said to my friend and director, Nick Rogue, was I wanted to remake Man Who Fell to Earth, which Nick had made with David Bowie. And he rather grumpily said to me, you know, why do you want to remake that? And what's wrong with my version? I said, your version isn't faithful to the book. The book is completely different and has hundreds of scenes that you should have had in the movie. And then I thought, oh, my God, that's probably true of Queen's Gambit as well.
0: Was it written by Walter Tevis, The Man Who Fell to Earth? Yes. Well, it was, wasn't Not it? Not the movie, the screenplay no, the, was no, the, the book. The novel. Book was, yeah was, was his. I've never read it. Well,
1: it's worth reading. It's, Is it? Well, look, I mean, Nick's movie was interesting and strange and wonderful. He, one of the journalists said to him, you know, why did you cast David Bowie? And Nick said, think about it. How many actors can play somebody from another planet? <laughs> <laughs> I thought it was a perfectly good answer.
0: So what was it? Alan, that really held the studios back. Was it the fact that this movie has chess as its yeah. centrepiece, Enti- like?
1: Entirely. And what they didn't understand, because studios only get access to screenplays when they're read by very young and often very untalented people, and studios get coverage from various people, and the studio coverage basically focused on the game of chess. And what they didn't understand, what would have done if... A somebody had read the script properly was that they weren't games of chess they were they were emotional and dramatic sequences that were played over a chessboard. you didn't have to know a single thing about chess to enjoy the movie or the series and that's still true
0: you're an orphan bet i'm fine being alone i feel safe in an entire world of just 64 squares creativity and psychosis often go hand in hand
1: Or for that matter,
0: genius and madness. It almost felt to me like they were games of life. There was so much right. going on in that.
1: Chess uh, actually, game. We also we had um, Gary Kasparov as our chess advisor because everybody, well, particularly Scott Frank, who directed and, and wrote a lot of the episodes, wanted to wanted to make the, the chess absolutely unattackable by chess players. So we had not one, not two, not three, but four advisors on chess. Two of them were German champions who were young and were able to hang around 12 hours a day and say, no, that shouldn't go there, it should go there. Uh, one was Gary Kasparov, who read it overnight, and Scott and I met him for lunch the next day. And he made all the right noises and said, "Oh yes, this is very good." And you've got it. He said, "There is one thing. Sorry, I do a bad impersonation of a Russian."
0: I like your (laughs) impersonation. Carry on. Carry on. He
1: said, "There is one thing. You have them talk about Czech and the Czech mate. This is never ever said." In real chess championship. Is it not? Well, of course it isn't, because the other guy knows where you are and the other woman knows where you are. And and they don't need to be told that it's, <laughs> you know, they don't need to be told that it's checking 26 moves from now. Because they can see it. They can it. see it. They can see it. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so with this burden, I thought, well, we've got to be able to tell the audience that she's in trouble or not. So we had to find other ways to do that. We, we I don't think you, see, you hear the word checkmate in the course of the movie.
0: Did you get the actor's to learn the moves so that they were authentic and also for the bits when you were filming the speed chess section
1: yeah. did
0: they learn the actual game so it looked authentic
1: you know well, I, the, the question really is did Anya learn the game yes. yeah uh, I think the answer is yes she certainly knows all the moves and I, and, you know, I think actors are good at memory things they, they, she would learn I suppose 10-15 moves uh, in a row it's not so hard
0: Tell me about her as the choice. I I found her performance breathtaking. Yeah. She is such a wonderful young talent and her look for it was just, I mean, I know this costume and makeup all plays right. a role, but she felt to me like she completely embodied this fictional character of Beth Harmon.
1: I think she she kind of did. I mean, I hope she's not the kind of drug addict that Beth Armend was. <laughs>
0: yes, that's true.
1: <laughs> <laughs> but she's a wonderful actress, and, and it, Scott Frank found her from other things.
0: She was in Peaky Blinders too. wasn't She was wasn't in Peaky she? I Blinders. I think later
1: after we'd cast her, that I'm not sure. I was. I, I mean, I never spoke against her, but I thought she was too odd-looking to play that role. And of course, what I'd forgotten and what Scott had seen was that odd-looking was exactly what that needed. I thought she had to be utterly beautiful to look at, but that was just me fantasizing.
0: But I think she was utterly beautiful in an odd fashion. And actually what attracted me as a woman to her as a, a female lead was the short fringe and the big eyes and... The unusual quirkiness of her appearance. Absolutely.
1: And and by the way, hair, costume, makeup they all work with her brilliantly. Because apart from anything else, she had to look the same as an 18-year-old as she did when she was a 12-year-old. The girl who plays Beth in the first whole episode before Anya becomes Beth was an English actress who was about 14, I think. I thought she was absolutely brilliant because that was the Beth that was at her most vulnerable mother had died she was in an orphanage etc and and she she was just extraordinary and the moment i saw her that child playing beth i knew then that anya was right for bless and I adult
0: when you read walter's book as a as a as a writer and as a storyteller what was it about the story that really gripped you and made you think yes this is such a good story
1: I think it's a Victorian melodrama. It's about the poor little orphan who succeeds over all adversity. I mean, I don't want to give anything away, but what I what sold me on the book was exactly what sold me on Don't Look Now, a terrific ending. I mean, an ending that, we, you, you, you can't imagine what the ending is. It's not a big surprise narratively. It's not anything that you don't anticipate, but it's so beautiful and so resolves her character. And I thought, if I can get, people do a point in that ending where they utterly believe in her then the ending validates itself and the show works emotionally it's very interesting about how writers always look for the, uh, the emotional arc in, in, in a scene in several scenes in whatever you, parts of the film first act second act third act whatever it is we always look for, for how you use the emotion it was a very interesting case I'd written the scene in which Beth goes back to the orphanage as an adult and discovers that the man who taught her chess in the first place has been keeping clippings of all her successful career since then and they're all in a cupboard and it's a terribly moving moment the way Scott shot it I was either not around well we didn't discuss it the way Scott shot it she sees this we the audience see it as well She leaves the room, she gets into the car that's taking her back to her home, and then she weeps, breaks down and weeps. The way I'd written it, she sees what happened in the room, and that's when she breakdowns and weeps. And I thought mine was the better version until I saw it cut together, and his was the better version because you're waiting for her to weep and she doesn't and you think oh god is this you know, is she a tough girl or what And then she weeps and it just works very much better than my version
0: but then I mean, that shows what a great collaboration it
1: is no it is it absolutely does yeah yeah
0: i thought the other thing is um berlin proved an amazing backdrop and the story is set all over the place isn't it russia vegas Mexico, I think.
1: Mexico, yes.
0: And yet a, a And large Kentucky,
1: don't forget Kentucky. And Kentucky, Kentucky of yeah. course.
0: But a large part of the movie was shot in Berlin, wasn't it? Did it, was that, all, it
1: was all shot Was in it Berlin. all shot in well, Berlin? Well, I mean, there were some shots that other people did. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Gave you a, an amazing backdrop.
1: It's, it's extraordinary. I mean, Mex- Berlin was the best actor in the piece and there was some fine acting.
0: There was some fine acting. And what about the costumes as well? Particularly as the, without giving anything away, as the series develops, for me, the costumes were breathtaking.
1: You know, the whole story is set in the 50s or early 60s. In fact, in one or two of my different drafts with various directors, I wanted to end up with the Beatles' first number one hit. But we moved it over the period of time a little later than that, so I didn't have that. But Berlin is one of those cities which, as you know, was devastated by the war. And so it could reinvent itself. And it reinvented itself in a kind of brilliant way. And what's happened is the part of the city that was least destroyed is actually now the most fun and interesting part of the city. It's like, anyway, it's, I mean, it's like London, except it doesn't have a 17th century quarter. And, of course, the ugliest parts are all the parts that were built after the war in the 50s. Uh, but, but Berlin had to stand in as Soviet Russia in 1960 for us. And it did a jolly good job.
0: It did a jolly good job. I know you didn't spend every waking hour for 30 years bringing this to Netflix and and, uh, the screen, but you did spend a lot of time. You, You took the rights to the book, and over the years you talked to lots of different people about it. What kept you going? What was the drive behind that perseverance? The
1: absolute certainty that it was a really, really interesting and strong drama. I mean, you know, it wasn't arrogance. It was just confidence in Walter Tevis' work. I think the guy is a genius. I think that in time to come, his other books will all be filmed. I think in time to come, Ann Tyler's books will all be filmed. Now, most of us have read at least one Ann Tyler. But the fact is there are about six Ann Tyler books that somebody should be making right now. There are writers who have the gift of being translatable into drama. And those are two of them.
0: I'm fairly ashamed to admit that I've never read Walter Tevis, and I've also bought myself a copy, which is in my handbag now, so we'll be reading it. But what I was fascinated to learn is that when he wrote that book, some of it is semi autobiographical, and he did grow up in a children's home where they gave the children tranquilizers, much like they did Beth in the story. When I was watching it, I suppose as a TV person and somebody who spent a whole career in broadcasting, normally I'm transported by the story which I was but I was curious as to the scenes when she's taken the drugs and and the chessboard comes to life how much of a challenge as filmmakers was was that for you and Scott
1: I I think everybody who worked on the Queen's Gambit at every stage of its life we all recognize that the brilliance of the idea of her imagining a chessboard on the ceiling and particularly, it's, it's fairly clear in in the Netflix version of the story that it's it comes about as a result. I'm not sure if it's any longer is it's in the movie or not. In the book, it's when the woman who runs the orphanage bans her from playing chess. And the moment she's banned from playing chess, she comes up with the idea of imagining the chessboard on the ceiling. And we've already established that that she can do that because when she's playing with with Mr. Shebel, the janitor, and one of his colleagues, she plays the whole game blindfold. You know that um, I think it was Bobby Fisher who played 50 blindfold games in Chicago, and on the way home by plane, he annotated every single game. I mean, there is a, there is a special gift about playing chess. It's it's not necessarily genius, but it's something that normal people don't have
0: well when you see how it's played in the Queen's Gambit you realise that there's a whole art to it isn't there and unless you're invested in learning those sequences you never stand a chance unless you're just playing with your kids at home
1: one of the things I enjoyed most was the research in the 80s that I did going to international and other chess tournaments because the setup is so wonderful and finding rooms full of other people with their tiny little chess boards following the game that's being played downstairs by the world chess stars and the passion that's invested in it and the leadership and it's just it's a wonderful world all by itself
0: and wasn't there an interesting clause in your contract with this that you couldn't change the game from chess to anything else
1: mr Tevis was dead when i by the time i read the book so I dealt with his widow and her agents they asked me would you agree to a clause that it can't you can't change the game I said why would I change the game they said well you never know what happens with Philistines and I said why would I work for Philistines but anyway they were unpersuaded and I said yeah fine. I'm absolutely fine to have a clause in your contract that I am not allowed to change it to Ping pong.
0: <laughs> so presumably, when you took it to Netflix, Alan, it was in 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 your head. It was a movie. I'm guessing at that point. Before, no, no, Or did you take it in series form?
1: We took it. I, I mean, they read the book and my one of my scripts or two of my scripts. I don't. Know. And but Scott wanted to do it as a long form, six episodes, and I was immediately happy because I, all it was giving us to do was an opportunity to colour the the people involved more.
0: What happened when you first saw that? on tv where were you when you first saw the netflix episode
1: i I was at queen mary's hospital with covid for the second time
0: did you think you were hallucinating when it it finally went
1: on you know i couldn't really tell if i was hallucinating i thought i was still working on the edit with the director because nowadays you can send edits to anybody along with a computer so we spent weeks where scott would show us the latest cut and we were allowed to say well yes or why not this you know Scott was a wonderful, good collaborator, I'll say that.
0: No, it's it's wonderful. It's funny, Alan, I feel very honoured to be here and sitting with you. you know, you've know, you made so many films that have punctuated my life and I think more than 23 or more feature films and you're surrounded by posters. We're looking at Regeneration on the wall. I love
1: Regeneration. Yeah. It's my favourite movie. And I mean, I really, I, I acquired the rights in that. I wrote that. I produced it with a Canadian partner and we had a very happy and a wonderful director Gillis McKinnon who is an experienced director who hasn't yet made the big breakout movie that he is capable of any day I loved it because it's my wounded child because I think it's really really good and an important movie it got nominated for best British film in its year but mostly because when we finally got a deal to distribute it in America the deal was contingent upon changing the title. And when a movie changes its title, it dives from the premiership into the third division. And there's nothing you can do about it. And it means that a lot of people who should have had access to it didn't have access to it. I mean, it's done okay and it's sold steadily on DVDs and on downloads. But it's just a movie that I think should have been seen by more people and appreciated by more people.
0: What are the other ones that really stand out for you? If you were having a cup of tea by the fire, reflecting on some of the highlights of your career, which ones do you look back at? I'm looking at another poster here, Shallow Grave. Well, Shallow Grave
1: Grave was, was barely, I mean, I wasn't involved deeply in Shallow Grave, although they very sweetly, after it was done, I executive produced it, but after it was done, they asked me if I would do their next one together. And I said, what's it about? And they said, drug addicts in Edinburgh. And I said, no, not realising that they were geniuses. And I should have said
0: yes. <laughs> yes,
1: exactly. But I'm fine with that. They were, they were a really good team and they made a couple of really fine movies. I mean, Danny Boyle is, I guess, England's outstanding director at the moment. And when we see each other, we smile politely.
0: <laughs> but which ones does it really which stand do out I for like? you?
1: Yeah, which well, regeneration? Don't look now, obviously. I love Priscilla, yeah. which is not a movie. But I mean, I think anybody who can say they made regeneration and Priscilla and be the same person is a person I'd be interested to meet.
0: Well, I, that's why we are interested to meet you. <laughs> now, the other thing that fascinates me is also sitting above your fireplace here is a picture of you sitting on a whiskey cask. I mean, I'm bit fond of a single malt myself and I gather you were you're pretty high up at McAllen and Glenlivet in the 70s late 70s am I I um, right Alan I was
1: actually on the board for about 10 years before they made me chairman or they invited me to become chairman and I said look I don't think I've got any skills in chairmanship I've never done it and I'll do it for a year until we find recruit a proper chairman And during that year, I discovered that, actually, I was quite good at all the skills. They're very small skills. They're like, are you any good at chairing a meeting? I became, the time, the hardest time I had chairing a meeting of any kind was I was chairman of the Writers Guild uh, during that period for a while. And I would think I was the only chairman of a public company who was also a chairman of a trades union. We were allowed, as the Writers Guild, we were allowed to put down questions for the annual trades union conference. (laughs) Anyway, I asked if I could become the chairman for the workforce at the distillery, but I was told that would be a, a breach too far.
0: Would that be a bit of a, a conflict of interest, maybe? Comfort, yeah. Did, was the um, best bit having to sample some of the... No, whiskey? the best
1: bit was, was marketing. I discovered marketing and I, and I really enjoyed it. I liked all the, the wheezes and, the, and it's bloody hard work. I mean, what is marketing? We had, a new, we had an established whiskey that was maybe the best whiskey in, in Scotland. And everybody acknowledged it. I once wanted, I I asked them to do a campaign for me, which actually we never did in the end, which was to ask every head person of every distillery, what was their second favorite malt whiskey? I love that. Because I was fairly confident what the answer would be. (laughs) But the danger was we might not get them to answer the way we wanted. (laughs) But we did, we did dangerous things. Anyway, so advertising was part of the, part of the fun. I loved doing, we started, we had a very limited budget, so we had to do little ads that got attention paid to them. But um, that's
0: storytelling again, isn't it? That story, into- it's all
1: story. I, I, well, marketing is about storytelling, really.
0: Absolutely. And you grew up in Scotland, didn't you? I then? grew
1: up, I went to, yes, I didn't leave Scotland except for holidays until I was 18, Did 70, you go to Gordonston as well? I did, I went yeah, to what, what was that experience it, like? It was all right. I mean, Gordonston was just a sort of conventional school.
0: Did you enjoy growing up in Scotland? Do you feel that like your your roots and your heart are, are still there?
1: Yes, I think so. I, I had a, a, a public dispute a few years ago and somebody said, oh, Alan, Alan is not really a Scot. And I thought, what does that mean? So I said... So I wrote back, I said, Alan's father was Scottish and born in Scotland. His grandfather was, his great-grandfather was, and you will even find ancestors beyond that buried in Fockaber's cemetery. Besides that, Alan went to school in in Scotland from the age of six or seven. Alan was educated entirely in Scotland until he was 17. Alan runs a large Scottish company, and while running a large Scottish company, he spends more nights in Scotland than a diligent Labour MP. Now tell me where I am not Scottish enough. The answer is that I didn't have a Scottish accent. And there are some Scots that don't have Scottish accents.
0: I'm from Grimsby and I don't have a Grimsby accent. But I'm definitely a there Grimbarian. Yeah, there you yeah. go. And what about your love and your passion for writing? Where did that come from? And when did you realise, Alan, that actually you're pretty good at it?
1: <laughs> Thank you. I don't know. You, you get. You, obviously you get good at it because it pleases you what you're doing. And I was always good at it at school. It was the only thing I was good at. I had an extraordinary experience about education. I went to McGill University in Montreal because I was going to go to my father's old college in Cambridge, which was John's College, Cambridge. And in those days, if you had five O levels and a father, you you had a good chance. Um, And then I discovered that the teaching of English, an English degree in those days at Cambridge, Ended in about 1400. So you basically did Anglo-Saxon, Early English, Chaucer, and that was about it. That was
0: it. You ended with Chaucer.
1: And I thought, in May, I discovered this, and I thought, I can't do that. So I found this university called McGill in Montreal, and they did American literature, modern English literature, French literature. I could do everything I wanted. So I applied, and not only did I get in, I got in straight to the second year. So I didn't have to do all the sort of compulsory exams which were equal to A-levels, I guess. Anyway, and I absolutely fell in love with McGill, and I did everything that one would do when one falls in love with the university. They have their clubs evening early on in the first term, where you go up and down through the Union Hall, And decide what clubs you might like to join. And the first club I joined was called the McGill Outing Club, (laughs) (laughs) which in those days didn't mean what it means now. (laughs) It was about going out on weekends on adventures, climbing mountains, rowing across lakes, etc. Anyway, uh, and then I joined a drama club and etc. And, you know, the rest is boring. But I loved writing and I became very quickly I became the features editor of the daily newspaper at McGill and now you think a university daily newspaper well it was actually printed on the presses of a proper newspaper so we couldn't go to bed until three in the morning when we had the presses available to us and it had a circulation of about 40,000 so it was a respectable newspaper about 20 pages anyway I was the features editor responsible for features and one of the things they asked me to do was to publish each week week and one of the dailies, it was five days a week, published uh, a, a poem that I liked, was submitted by a student. And I came across this poetry I really liked, and I published it, and I published it again, and I published it six weeks later, and I published it again the next term. And I was hauled up by a committee of the newspaper, and they said, you're publishing poems by somebody who's not a big undergraduate. And I said, oh, I'm afraid I didn't realize that. I just called his name. And I published him because I like his poetry. And so they made me stop publishing the works of Leonard Cohen. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> and were, he was there sort of eight, eight years before me, or ten years before me, I can't remember. Oh, <laughs> but they were just wonderful pieces of
0: work. Gosh, they certainly were. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. What are you up to now? I know you're doing a project with Cat Stevens. Tell us a bit about that.
1: A long, long time ago, I worked with Cat Stevens, or Yusuf Islam, as he now is called. we working on a children's book that might have all kinds of various aspects to it, spin-offs into cartoons and animation, all that kind of thing, and various other projects. Yusuf. I asked him the other day, do I call you Yusuf or Kat or Stephen, as I used to call him when I first knew him. He's such a nice man. Is he? Yeah. I mean, and you know, he's white-bearded and, and occasionally robed, which I find a bit distancing. <laughs> um, but uh, I really enjoy working with him. He's bright, and he's, and, he's, and he's kind of back in the world. He's done a new album. There we are. Anyway, so I'm doing that with him. I'm doing a couple of musicals, at least two, one of which I'm really looking forward to is about the Second World War. And it's really an attempt to educate everybody under the age of 60 about roughly what happened in the Second World War, using only the music that was enjoyed in the period 38 to 46. 46. I had to go to 46 because there were a couple of songs in 46 that I liked better.
0: Gosh, that's amazing. So you must really love the research that goes into that.
1: I certainly know every song that was ever written or enjoyed, yes.
0: And is that really pleasurable, listening? i have,
1: I I've absolutely adored it. And what's really pleasurable is that hopefully I'm going to co-arrange it. And you change everything. I mean, when I did Priscilla, the songs come in a different context. And because of that, then the arranger sits there and, and reinvents them, as it were. I mean MacArthur Park, which is one of the big songs in Priscilla, just it works better than I've ever heard MacArthur Park work. Because all the people who sing it have a an emotional life that the audience is following. And so this burst of Color My World, the same thing. Those those songs and anyway, I'm hoping to do the same thing with World War II. But I had a real problem. I couldn't find uh, a song for the company or for somebody to sing after one of my leading characters dies in a London bombing raid. Because you can't have somebody go off and sing, I love her, I mean, that's too shallow and too glib. And I took a long time finding it, but it's why I stretched to 46. The song that the bereaved person sings can be told, you can know what it is from the title. Spring will be a little late this year. And you, the moment you hear that, you think, oh, that's a really good emotional thing, song to say. Anyway, there we are. And so the, song, the show is full of those, and we've got a lot of interest in it, so I'm hoping I get it up before the end of next year.
0: It's clear, looking at your eyes and your hands and the way you're so animated when you talk about your work, that you love what you do. How do you switch off, Alan?
1: Or perhaps do you not switch off? I read a huge number of books for my work So it means I don't read that much for pleasure any longer. I have readers who help me and I find them very useful who, you know, professionally look at screenplays and look at novels, give you an analysis of them. They're really useful. In fact, one of my current readers, I'm about to offer to write a screenplay for me. Gosh, that's amazing. Well, it's just because you can see that his his thinking goes along the same lines as yours approximately. So let him have a try, you know.
0: And do you ever get back to Scotland
1: these days? Do you still have a little I, Much less space? than I used to. I, I gave up in one year four, five public bodies that I was running in Scotland. And I gave up six commercial companies that I was on in Scotland.
0: Do you
1: still get do up I to, to Scotland? Scotland for pleasure? I well, I, also I'm on a, a couple of uh, university bodies and I do that. And I go up for pleasure. I, only I have a home up there. I go up less than I did simply because I travel to the States a lot. There's not, not as much opportunity. Also, I'm not a real Scot because I don't have a Scottish accent.
0: No, of course you're not a real Scot and I'm not a real Grimbarian. I tell you what, it's been an absolute joy sitting here today and and having a little whiz through some of your career and also hearing the story behind The Queen's Gambit. I mean, forgive us for being so fascinated, Alan, but it was... Such an amazing series and it's great to hear. The story behind it is pretty much as fascinating, isn't it? I must tell you,
1: I I I really like Netflix. When I was ill, out of the blue I got a bunch of flowers and a note from the chairman of Netflix, whom of course I'd never met, it's a multi-billion pound corporation, who somehow noticed that I was in hospital with COVID and sent me a commiseration note. <laughs> I like a company that does that.
0: I like a company that does that, but he must like you too because you've broken all kinds of records for his company. So I'm sure the, the feeling's mutual, I'm i guess. I hope
1: so. Anyway, they went very nice and they sent me a, they sent me a large cheque when we won um, the Emmy. Did they? <laughs> yes. Oh, we
0: like large cheques, don't and we? we? Like I hope large it was checks. more than £2,000. Uh, it, it was. Good.
1: Why is two thousand pounds your odds? Because we were
0: talking about two thousand pounds earlier, weren't oh, we? Oh,
1: when I was a young man. Yeah, you've yeah. got a bit
0: more expensive than that these days.
1: By the way, that's something we should we should ensure that all universities run competitive courses with cash prizes. I won a prize in my second term of two thousand dollars, which transformed my life. It meant I could actually date a girl. It meant I could go to a movie, and I, and I which I couldn't do prior to that prize.
0: Well, you should start and it, now you on should a university start bo- it.
1: Now on a university body, I'm on, on, a, on a committee where we just come up with a new thing where we discovered that children who have had care tend to do less well at university than others. And we investigated as to why, and it turns out that it's a lack of cash. They don't have them. they're brought up by an adopted family or whatever, and they don't have the cash to pay for the accommodation or the food. And so we now have a pan-Scottish initiative to help people who are from care of any kind.
0: Pan-Scottish, even though you're not Scottish. (laughs) (laughs) Alan, thank you so much for your time. I could chat away to you all day, but this is perfect podcast length, isn't it? Maybe we'll have to do part two at some point.
1: I, I I think we should start making whiskey in Grimsby. (laughs)
0: I'm with you I'll help you with the marketing (laughs) and the uh, tasting You're not
1: Grim'sbury enough.
0: (laughs) Thank you very much (laughs) (laughs) You've been listening to screenwriter and producer Alan Scott sharing the extraordinary backstory to finally getting the Queen's Gambit made after three decades not every day of trying which millions of us of course have enjoyed now all over the world Do download our series at convex.podbean.com or search The Convex Conversation on Spotify Apple and Google Podcasts Stitcher Wherever you listen to podcasts, I'll be back next week with another great guest. Do join me then.